Good evening. We are in the middle of a series, smack dab in the middle, that is a year long. And if that seems like a long series, it is. It's on spiritual growth. So we broke it up into three mini-series. We had an inward journey, an upward journey, and we will have an outward journey. And you know, four-month series are long too, so we broke those up into many, many series And we're actually in one on the Psalms right now, first message. But first, what is the upward journey? Let's talk about that. We have a catchphrase. The upward journey is about beholding and becoming. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul wrote that in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's right out of the Bible. And what Paul is saying there is, the more time you spend with God, the more you look at Him, get to know Him, He rubs off on you. You become like the people you associate with. So Paul is saying, associate with God. Get to know God. Let God rub off on you. And as you get to know Him, He will make you more like Him. So as we learn about God in this upward journey, which is what it's all about, let's not neglect the fact that that's supposed to rub off. We're supposed to be changed. Amen? Amen. We are starting the Psalms. God in the Psalms. So no. This is not going to be an expository lesson on what a psalm is or the time frame it was written on. We're looking for something specific. We're looking for how is God reflected in this psalm? What truth can we glean about psalm from God from this psalm? But we need to answer a question, and that is what is a psalm, before we get started with our first one. And a psalm is actually going to be pretty familiar to most of us. The psalms are just poems. They're just very, very old Hebrew poems They were written by really a bunch of authors. King David wrote most of them, but there are several authors in there. And they were set to music, and they were used for worship. And just like any poem, or really any song, they conveyed all kinds of different emotions. They talk about praise. They they convey sorrow. They have repentant psalms in there. There are calls for justice. Has anybody ever heard the big fancy term imprecatory psalm? Those are the psalms where someone is Leonard Duke. Amen. Preach. Jimmy, you should raise your hand too. Those are the psalms that we don't like to preach on because someone has really irritated the psalmist and he's like, God, when are you going to come kick this person's butt for me? They're real mean. But, you know, is that a real human emotion? Do we feel that way sometimes? Should we be honest with God about how we feel? We should. So the psalms run the gamut of emotion, but they are just basically poems that were written and set to music and used for worship. That being said, that sounds really simple. How do we read the Psalms? How are we going to approach the actual poems themselves? And I have good news. It's easy. It's really easy. See, usually, if you want to know how to interpret a passage of the Bible, how many of you guys know the Bible wasn't written last week? Or even in the 1980s, which some people in this room weren't even alive in the 1980s. Grant, I see you looking at me. I don't appreciate your attitude. You know, I thought about Napoleon Dynamite the other day, actually, and I wanted to make a Napoleon Dynamite reference. And I think I'm getting old because, you know, I'm not really that old, but part of getting old, I think, is thinking things happened yesterday and they actually happened 15 years ago. I'm not sure my son was born when Napoleon Dynamite came out. But in any case, normally, if you want to do justice to the Bible, if you want to, specifically as a pastor, if I want to preach about a passage, I need to dig into the world that that text was written in. I need to know what the culture was. What was the context? What were the the habits and the practices of that day? And then knowing how that works into the ancient world, I know how to apply that to the modern world. And that's how any responsible interpreter and preacher should do it. But you almost get a pass on the Psalms. 
Because Psalms and Proverbs are kind of unique. If you've ever been angry or sad or repentant, then you know an awful lot about the context of the angry, sad, and repentant Psalms. And the Proverbs, too, are pretty straightforward. They're pretty timeless. You can read about a guy who's sad and say, I understand how he feels. So in that sense, it's easy to read the Psalms. But, ironically, it's also hard. So what might make it hard to read a Psalm? What are the tricky aspects? The fact that they're poems makes it interesting. I don't want to say hard. Hard might be the wrong word, but it makes it interesting. Because much of the language is figurative and not literal. And understanding the poetic devices that were used is very, very helpful. So we've all read songs or, or psalms or, or read the Bible where it talks about the arm of the Lord or God turned his face here or there. And do we stop and think, I wonder if it, they really thought that God had an arm. Right? Because the Bible says that God is spirit. He's using a poetic device there, isn't he? So we need to be aware that that kind of thing is being done. And we also need to be aware that the Bible is God's word to us, right? It's to you and you and you. It's to all of us. But the Psalms are unique because it's God's word to us that was written by someone else talking to God. So that's kind of weird too. So we need to kind of play that brain teaser game as we read the Psalms. But no worries. We're starting with the best known and one of the easiest tonight. You guys ready to dive in? Was that a good enough intro? Yeah. Excellent. You are experts on the Psalms now. Not counting Jimmy, who was an expert when he walked in and probably knows more than me. Let's talk about Psalm 23. Right next to John 3.16, I think this is one of the most commonly known scriptures in the entire Bible. I mean, you start saying, the Lord is my shepherd, and somebody in the room is going to say, I shall not want. Right? It's, it's just well known, even by people that don't normally go to church. So we're going to open with this one, and we're going to look at what this psalm reveals about God as our shepherd. The first thing it reveals, whether you want to admit it or not, is that sheep need shepherds. <laughs> dumb, dumb sheep. Like the, this was the dumbest, most oblivious sheep picture I could find on Google. You know, it, it's a happy sheep, but a word about sheep. You know, sheep aren't really the best of anything. The, the only thing they really excel at is growing fur. And, you know, the fur can actually kill them. They can actually, like, wander into briar bushes and brambles and not be able to get out. So even their strengths turn into a weakness. Uh, they're not very bright. Even the bighorn sheep or the Rocky Mountain sheep that look impressive and jump around on mountains are outclassed by the mountain goats that are that much awesomer. Just, nobody would really want to be a sheep. When they asked me what I wanted to be when I was a kid, it was, you know, a lion or a tiger or a liger to make the Napoleon Dynamite reference. But shepherd implies sheep, doesn't it? We're going to read a psalm written by King David. King David wasn't just the king of Israel when he was king. He was a folk hero. I mean, this was a, a war champion. This was the kid that killed Goliath. This was the savior of the nation. All of Israel had watched this, this king grow up from a little tiny kid and just keep doing amazing stuff. More and more amazing, more and more awesome, until he's finally the king of a unified Israel leading the charge. Amazing. This is really a somebody, and he's going to write a psalm saying that God is his shepherd, implying that he is that. So let's keep that in mind as we read. Let's go through it. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. 
Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Somebody say amen. I heard my mom say it already. Amen. Thank you, mom. The Lord is my shepherd. We're going to look at this psalm. We're not going to go ultra deep, but we're going we're to take the obvious, really. What truths about God as a shepherd can we take to the bank as certain from reading this psalm? And we're going to discover that it applies to three different aspects. What we can expect from the shepherd in everyday life. What does this mean on Tuesday afternoon at 2.30? What can we expect when times are hard? How, how does this psalm pertain to us when the worst thing has just happened? When all of life is a black place? When it seems like the sun isn't even shining on a day like today? We've all been there, I think. In those times, what does this psalm mean? And what should we expect in the future? And this psalm talk speaks to all three areas. So we're going to dive right in. First, what does it mean that God is our shepherd in everyday life? What does he do generally for us? What can we expect? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. First verse. Other translations say, I shall not want. But want is just an older English word for lack. It's something you don't have. Now, David Guzik who I really like, and I read his commentary on... Preach amen, you guys know it. Everybody should get the Blue Letter Bible app, I love it. David Guzik says this could have two meanings. Meaning one is, God, my shepherd, supplies all my needs. Now that's true, right? But meaning two is, I have decided not to desire what my shepherd does not provide. I shall not want. So that speaks to... A heart set, does it not? So right away, diving into verse 1, I was surprised at how much this was hitting me already. And I want to say that while it has been abused, we've, some of us have been to name it and claim it style churches that basically say, I went to a church one time, I'm not going to mention the name because that'd just be disrespectful. But they actually told the, the church, if you say you have faith, I want to go in the parking lot and look at your car. And my mom was with me, and, and we were not driving the best car at the time. And I was like, wow, I don't think I'm going to stay here, you know? So this truth that God is going to provide all your needs, that you, you will not lack, has been abused. But the truth remains. You can expect your shepherd to take care of you. You can expect your shepherd to do what shepherds do and provide what you need for you. Amen. Excellent. Verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. That's such a beautiful image anyway. He will make you lie down. He will make you lie down. Levi, I heard you laugh. And it is funny that you laugh. <laughs> Rest is important to God. He built the Jewish calendar around it. Think about that. One of the first things he did was say, on the seventh day of the week, you're not going to do anything. I want you to chill out. The Bible actually says, strive to enter into rest. You know what that means? That means you need to work hard so that on that rest day, on your rest times, you don't have to be worrying about anything. A lot of times in modern American culture, we view rest as, oh, I need to rest up so that I can go work. God's attitude is just the opposite. Rest is important to God, and if you don't lie down, the shepherd will make you. Expect it. 
He will enable you to rest by providing the right setting. Now, in studying this, I came across a quote also from Guzik from the book A Shepherd's View of the 23rd Psalm. And he said that sheep are so finicky and so weird that if they're afraid or if they're hungry or if something is going wrong, like flies are bothering them, they just won't relax. They won't lay down. And so part of the shepherd's job was to give them the peace inside that they needed to rest. You know what? You can expect that from the Lord as well. You can expect him to give you the peace that you need to lie down. And also the still waters are peaceful waters. There's no danger of drowning. It's peaceful. It's serene. And you may have noticed this is creating a bit of a word picture. And because this is a poem, the word picture that it's creating is just as important as the word itself. When you read this, you should be imagining kind of an idyllic scene in your mind, you know? And the feeling that you get when you look at that beautiful meadow or that beautiful sunrise is what God wants to give to you. That's part of the psalm because it's a poem. So some of us receive that imagery better than others, but we should all think about that. God wants that peace and that rest. He refreshes you. He makes you lay down. Expect it. Verse 3. He refreshes or restores, in other translations, my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. This one caught me completely by surprise. Because we just talked about refreshing, right? The green pastures, the still waters, resting. What else do you need to be refreshed? This may not be primarily about being refreshed at all. It could mean that, but verse 2 already covered that. Restores could also mean to turn back my soul, which would refer to repentance. Do sheep ever wander away? Do sheep ever wander away from the shepherd, away from the group, away from safety? Part of the shepherd's job then is to turn them back. Count on it. And the right paths is also translated paths of righteousness. I think an intentional word play is meant here because one is guidance, right? If I ask you directions to go to Battle Creek and you tell me get on 131 and do anything, you've given me the wrong path, right? (laughs) It's 94 East or you're not going to get there. So direction is meant here. Guidance is meant here. We should take this to mean that I should pray about what God wants me to do with my life. But paths of righteousness would imply that conduct is also implied here. And if he's turning back my soul, if that implies repentance, if I can count on the shepherd, my good shepherd, to draw me back to him when I start to stray, I should also expect him to want me to live the way he wants me to live. He turns back my heart and he leads me into the paths of righteousness. Heart and guidance are both implied. Which concludes everyday life. Are you guys ready to talk about hard times? Hard times. Yes, hard times. <laughs> if you're in hard times right now, you will be, I, I'm hoping that you find this encouraging. I've found it encouraging in the past. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, also translated the valley of the shadow of death in other translations, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. First of all, this is a three-liner, so we're going to shrink that down before we begin. We still walk through the valley of death. But this is a careful word choice. We go through it. The psalmist never thinks, I hope I don't die in the shadow of death. He always knows that it's a journey through. You're not stopping. It might have been Winston Churchill, I forget who said it, that if you're going through hell, don't stop. <laughs> Keep going. That's kind of the same idea here. You are going through the valley of the shadow of death. Man, there's an end in sight. 
But it's still the darkest valley, is it not? It's still the valley of the shadow of death. And we're still talking about sheep. This is not the place you want to be. This is very scary. And it could mean a couple different things. This may refer to this entire earthly life. David really might mean this existence is the valley of the shadow of death. We see hints of this other places in Scripture. Here's one. Luke 1.79, talking about Jesus, said that he came to shine on those living in darkness and those in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So there's a sense in which this whole existence is the shadow of death. But there's another sense that it could actually mean the moment of death. A lot of people when they're dying, I'm told, I've, I've never experienced it myself, but when you're at the moment of death, many people turn to this psalm. A lot of people, that though I walk through the valley of the shadow, I will fear no evil. And they cling to that as a promise. And they understand somewhere deep that they are facing the thing that David was talking about. The ultimate enemy is there, and they're clinging to their shepherd. Here's an extended quote from Spurgeon. Death in its substance has been removed, and only the shadow of it remains. Nobody is afraid of a shadow, for a shadow cannot stop a man's pathway even for a moment. The shadow of a dog cannot bite. The shadow of a sword cannot kill, and the shadow of death cannot destroy us. Amen. The Bible talks about believers having already passed from death to life. How death is defeated, death is done, death is lost. And so the test of faith for a believer at the moment of death, when we go the way of the world, as the Bible says, is to realize that this thing might wear out, but my spirit's connection with the Lord will not stop even for an instant. Paul said to die is to be present with the Lord. There is no big journey. There is no painful transition regarding your presence with Jesus. You're connected now. You'll be connected then instantly. Death really doesn't have a sting. It can't pull you away from the shepherd. But there's a third aspect that this could be speaking about. And that is the presence of very real enemies. If you've ever studied David for any reason, you know that he went through periods of his life where he wasn't safe and he wasn't popular. The king of Israel tried to kill him for a long time. He was running around in the wilderness trying not to get chopped to bits by angry soldiers for a long time. And once he got to be king, all of the other kingdoms wanted to chop him to bits too. And they did that kind of thing back in the day. He didn't want that to happen to him. So when he writes these psalms about the enemies surrounding him, that's not his emotional mopiness. He's not talking about the enemy of depression. He might be talking about that too, but he's talking about real people that want to do him in. And that could be what he's talking about here, and we get clues later that, in fact, he is. But it certainly refers to this, at least in part. But the good news is that the rod and the staff comfort him. What is a rod and a staff? That's the the shepherd's weapons, right? Shepherds were responsible for fighting wolves and bears and stuff. You're going to have a rod and a staff. You're going to have a big baseball batty thing to whoop up on some predators because, let's be honest, sheep are not going to do a very good job of defending themselves themselves. Favorite slide of all time. This is a good picture for me. (laughs) This helps me remember what it's like to have the good shepherd through the valley of the shadow of death. Put the kids to bed. There's a lot of violence and some bad language. Watch Terminator 2. Look for father heart imagery from the Lord. I'm telling you, if you get mad, send emails to Cameron at New Day Community Church. But odds are you'll be crying at the end just like I am every time. 
Expect your shepherd. Expect your shepherd to be close in hard times and ready to act on your behalf. Expect it. Whether that's the moment of death, the normal happenstances of everyday life, or a very real threatening situation, rely on him. One more. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Hold on a minute. We have not changed scenes. He's talking about being in the valley of the shadow of death, and now he's talking about enemies. This makes me think that David was in real physical danger. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And there are these two weird lines. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. What is he talking about there? Let's shrink it and talk about it. Boom. Perhaps the table was a leather sheet the shepherd would lay for forging material on when times were tough. FYI, this must be reliable because, one, the book I got it from belongs to Pastor Mark. Two, it was very old and dusty. And three, it was thick. And four, it was written by a guy with an English-sounding name. So it's got to be true. So it could mean this, that the shepherd, when things were dry or tough, he would forge for the sheet lay a a leather piece of something on the ground and put some fodder on there for the sheep to eat. But this actually conjures up an image of of an ancient oriental feast. You're preparing a table, you're preparing a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. Yeah, in the presence of my, I almost said enemies? Enemies. At feasts like that, guests were honored by having their heads anointed with perfumed oil. Whoa. Not only that, if it goes on, sheep, actual sheep, when they were injured, would have oil poured on their heads or oil poured on their wounds by the shepherd. So we have all kinds of weird depths of meaning here that are not immediately apparent. The full cup also signifies provision. So you have more than enough when you're seated at this table that he has prepared for you in the presence of your enemies. Now, That last part, in the presence of your enemies, in the valley of the shadow of death, in my mind, this isn't in the psalm, this is Anthony's interpretation, this is where my imagination goes, but you already know I'm thinking about Terminator. So I'm imagining like one of those movies where it's one guy and all the enemies are coming in, you know, and there's like 10,000 against one, and all of a sudden God himself comes down and says, well, hold on, it's like the Lord Almighty, right? He's like radiant and shining and all the enemies are freaking out. And he's like, before we get this battle started, like, my guy needs dinner. Can we just, can we pause? You know, and he puts the TV tray down, and he brings out all the food. And everybody else is scared to death, right? Because it's God. And I'm eating, and he's honoring me and healing me. And then he's like, okay, you guys can go. But actually, I'm going to be doing the fighting, if that's okay with you. Because my rod and my staff comfort him. How's that going to go for them? I think that is the image that David is trying to conjure up. God comes down, feeds me, and fights for me. That is amazing. Expect the shepherd, when times are tough, to be powerful enough to honor you, heal you, refresh you, and bless you when your enemies want to destroy you. They don't get their way when God is your shepherd. You might just be a sheep, but who your shepherd is matters an awful lot when the wolves come. Amen? Amen. Now let's talk about the future, the last scene of this psalm. Is this good? You guys liking this? Excellent. Verse 6, last one. Surely your goodness and your love, other translations say mercy, but it's translating the same word, will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. How long? Forever. 
forever. Let's shrink it and talk about it. Boom. First of all, this word goodness. We talked about this before. I used this exact picture. I'm not going to attempt to write down a definition. This is a screenshot from my blue letter Bible app. It means goodness, okay? All the things you can think about that mean goodness, it means. All right, so there it is. I can give you the presentation if you want, but it really means God is good and his goodness is following you. And love or mercy in other translations, this is that Hesed word that we talked about in the message on God's faithfulness. So if you want to hear God is good expounded on, go to newdaycommunity.org, go to the Vine campus, and listen to the message on the goodness of God. We just did it a couple months ago. And if you want to hear more about Hesed, God's faithfulness, do the same thing and look at the faithfulness of God. But our working definition for this word was the tenacious, self-sacrificing, covenant faithfulness of God. Can't get rid of them. Man. So what is this saying? That type of goodness and this type of faithfulness is going to follow you all the days of your life? That's amazing. The image created here is that the heavily armed Terminator shepherd is in front of you and his goodness and his faithfulness are behind you. So suddenly you might just be a sheep, but things aren't so bad. We expect our shepherd to be constantly good and faithful. David knew it. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, the character and the intentions of God, his shepherd, do not change. They are constant. Constant. So in the last verse, David actually loses the sheep imagery, doesn't he? He says, goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life, and I am going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's done with this metaphor, you know, and as if you didn't know, he was really talking about him the whole time. He's like me. It's me. The Lord is my shepherd. His ultimate desire is to be in the house of the Lord. Now, why is that? Well, the house of the God back in the ancient world, was referring to its temple. And it was a temple of the God because the God's presence was supposed to be there. The big difference between the God of Israel and every other God was that in Yahweh's house, Yahweh was actually there. There was really someone home. (laughs) David spent a lot of time in the temple for that reason, just hanging out, worshiping, thanking the Lord. And he's the king. He's the most powerful man in the nation on the way to becoming the most powerful man in the world. And he says, you know what? I'm cool being a sheep and I just want to hang out with you. I just want to do this forever because I know who you are. I know even in the dark times, you're going to take care of me. Your goodness and mercy are with me. I just want to be in the house of the Lord forever. He's looking forward to relationship. Wow. That's humility. So let's recap. At 2.30 in the afternoon on Tuesday, you can expect the shepherd to provide for you, refresh you, convict you, guide you along the right paths and into the correct behavior. All that is from the first three verses of this song. When times are tough, you can expect your heavily armed Terminator shepherd, it's never going to get old to me, to be close to you, ready to defend you, and powerful enough to heal, honor, and bless you despite the fact that your enemies want to kill you. Expect it when times are hard. And in the future, it only gets better. Always have goodness in store. For, he will always have goodness in store for you. He will always be faithful to you. And he will always have room in his house for you. Forever. Forever. So suddenly, 
This guy is smiling for a reason. Is he not? He doesn't seem so dopey now. He knows who his shepherd is. He understands his situation. And understanding it like we do now, it's not hard to imagine why a king would envy this guy. Thank you, guys. So that concludes the message. Yeah, amen. Let's just pray, shall we?